The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, good afternoon, everybody. (laughs) And I thank you all for your patience and persisting with this all-day program so far. Now I will speak a little bit more about some of the qualities. These will be some of the personal or subjective qualities which enter into the practice of what I would call conscientious compassion. And this is not a standard list of wholesome qualities. It doesn't correspond exactly to either the seven factors of enlightenment or the ten or six paramitas. They're just a number of factors that I've sort of assembled through my own reflection. I originally assembled them to give a little discourse to the members of the Buddhist Global Relief Board and the volunteers to try to explain in my own way of thinking what are the qualities we need to sustain us in our work. I think these qualities will be useful to anybody who is engaged in an active expression of compassion. Okay, the first of these is what I call faith. And this is the Pali word, sadda. And by faith here, in this particular context, I don't mean faith as the acceptance of any particular religious doctrine or body of religious teachings. But I'm using faith in a very broad or general sense that could apply to a follower of any religious teaching or of no religious teaching, but somebody who has a conviction in the value of, we say, of altruistic activity or of, or of spirituality. And I would explain faith in this sense as, I call it, a conviction that there is some force or power within and behind the working of events that is capable of sustaining us and helping us overcome obstacles in our quest to fulfill the good. So we might call this faith in the power of goodness. And this faith involves the belief that, I would say, goodness is not just a purely subjective evaluation, but that goodness is built into what I would call the, it's objectively built into the fabric of the universe. So when we commit ourselves to fulfilling a noble purpose, a wholesome purpose, when we commit ourselves to some kind of altruistic activity, even though it might seem that we are doing this in the quiet of our own room, it's sending vibrations 
throughout the universe and linking up, connecting with a hidden network of events, forces, processes that are taking place hidden behind the outer veil of phenomena, behind the mask of ordinary phenomena. And so when one places faith, when one undertakes some kind of altruistic action based on this faith, one is in a sense throwing oneself into a situation of, that calls for self-sacrifice, even sometimes exposing oneself to risk and danger. And it doesn't always mean that this faith is going like a magic amulet that's going to protect us all the time. There will be occasions when we'll meet with threats, injury, personal um, hardships, trials, tribulation, perhaps even death. But this faith is what motivates us to undertake this action. And we have the faith that no matter what kind of obstacles we face, at some level, even if it's a level that takes place beyond the life of this mortal body, we will be justified, we will be upheld, we will reach a deeper fulfillment. This kind of faith, for example, would be what has motivated, say, somebody like Albert Schweitzer, who had a career in Europe as a theologian, as a scholar of Bach, as a musician, to give all of this up and to enter into the forests of remote Africa in the early 20th century in order to perform services, medical services, for the people of, I think it was the Congo. This is the kind of faith that might motivate a journalist who is intent on finding out the truth, exposing the truth, to enter into areas which are prone to conflict, to violence, in order to unearth the truth, in order to let the rest of the world know. When we commit ourselves to activity like this out of faith, we are going against the ways of the world. This is like the Dhamma itself. The Buddha says that the Dhamma is pati sota gami. That means it goes against the current. So the current, say, of our ordinary worldly orientation tells us, you know, like my mother used to say to me, don't let anybody get ahead of you. You get ahead. You should be number one. <laughs> so this kind of worldly orientation is what motivates us always to throw ourselves out in order to outstrip the others. It's what motivates us to seek to get wealth, power, position, status, admiration, fame at, at the expense of others. So that all of those types of activities swirl around the focal point 
of ego. They're based on this assumption that we have some kind of inner core of selfhood, and they're intended to buttress or fortify that sense of selfhood. But when one engages in altruistic activity, one is at any level in some way negating the self, sacrificing the self, forgetting the self. And so from a purely mundane point of view, it seems that the person who undertakes such activity is the one who is bound to be the loser. But it's a little bit like the saying that comes in the Gospels, the one who would be first should be last, or maybe we could say the one who will ultimately win must be the one who is willing to lose. And it's through this faith that we show that we are willing to lose the things that ordinary people value and that we've been trained to value in order to find and to embody that which is invaluable. And what keeps us, what makes us willing to undertake that sacrifice, to work for the sake of others, is this faith that this law or principle behind the play of phenomena is going to support us. I compare this maybe to a little girl who is learning to swim. Now, if we take a stone and we put it on top of the water, we drop it into the water, what happens to the stone? It sinks to the bottom. And so if the little girl is reflecting according to the logic of a stone, she'll think, my body, it's much heavier than the stone. So if I jump into the pool, I'm going to sink and drown. But her parents might say, go ahead, don't worry, just jump in and don't be afraid. And she jumps in and what happens? Without struggling, without fighting, the water buoys her up and she floats. And once she starts learning to float, then she could start learning to swim. And before long, she could be an accomplished swimmer, maybe even an Olympic champion. <laughs> so the thought that my body is like the stone that's going to sink, that's like the thought if I take action on behalf of others, if I show myself willing to, if I show that I'm willing to sacrifice myself, I'm going to lose, I'm going to beat with trouble. But when we actually take that plunge and act on behalf of others, we find that this principle holds us up so that even when we meet with blame from others, criticism, attacks, trouble, difficulty, we feel an inner happiness and joy. The happiness and joy that, I would say, comes from this power of goodness just flowing through us. Okay, the second quality essential to the practice of conscientious compa compassion is, well, compassion itself. 
And compassion has these two aspects. That is, compassion as the meditative state of compassion and compassion as a commitment to action. Perhaps they're represented in the polytext by the two words, and this is not a scholarly pronouncement, so if there are any real poly scholars here, don't trip me up on this. <laughs> Otherwise I'll get angry and I can take revenge. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems like karuna is usually used in reference to the meditative state of compassion, the second of the four divine dwellings of Brahma-vihara. But the compassion and action seems to be represented by the word anukampa, or we have the expression anukampang upadaya, usually translated for the sake of compassion. So the Buddha, when he sits in meditation, he enters the mahakaruna samapati, the meditative achievement of great compassion, by which he suffuses the whole world with compassion. But when he gets up, and goes out to teach the Dhamma, he does so anukampangupadaya, out of compassion for the world. But the word here is anukampa, which actually comes from the verbal root kamp, and the verb kampati, to shake, to tremble, with the prefix anu, to shake with, to tremble with. So it's that quality that makes the heart tremble with the suffering of others and thereby motivates one to act to remove the suffering of others. Now, in order to practice compassion outwardly in the active form, it's very important for us as Buddhists to develop compassion, loving-kindness and compassion as meditative states. And what I've actually found very useful in, especially in doing the meditation on compassion, is to focus in on specific, individual, concrete cases. You know, it's very easy in a sense, or at least it seems easy, to sit down and think I'm going to suffuse the whole world with compassion, and then one thinks, may all beings be free from suffering, may all be free from sorrow, may all be free from fear, may all be free from suffering. And that can make one feel very nice, very lofty, very noble person. But to really generate what I would call a strong current of compassion. What's useful is to focus in on these specific cases that you might hear about from friends, read about in the newspaper, see on the news, cases of individuals who are really subjected to personal suffering. And when one brings them to mind, moving from one to another to another, not too quickly. You dwell on them for a couple of minutes. This is what sort of unleashes that force of compassion in the mind. And then that can provide the sort of the fuel to radiate the compassion out universally. 
Okay, so then we have compassion as the meditative state. And then we have belief system and motivations for putting compassion into action. That is, especially as Buddhists, we have the example of the Buddha himself who engaged throughout his life in compassionate activity, especially by teaching the Dhamma, but not only by teaching the Dhamma. Maybe some of you have heard the story about how there was one monk who was ill with a kind of skin disease so that his boils would appear on his, his body and they would break open and pus would flow out and none of the other monks would look after him because when they were sick, he didn't do anything to help them. And so the monks thought, there's no need for us to help him. Let his karma just take its own, its own course with him. So then Ananda reported to the Buddha that this monk was sick in the infirmary and that he was a young monk, an unknown monk, who was being dis- disregarded by the other monks. And so the Buddha went to that monk with Ananda. He asked Ananda to bring a basin of hot water, and the Buddha himself washed the wounds of that monk and treated him with some kind of medicinal salve and then helped to bring that monk back to to normal health. Okay, so a second motivating factor that I mention now is compassion. I spoke about this morning. The third factor again, I mentioned this this morning, but it doesn't hurt to come back to it, is what I call the commitment to justice, the sense of what I would call social and economic justice, which doesn't commit one to any kind of egalitarian socialism, (laughs) according to which everybody should have the same standard of living, but it does commit one to the idea that Nobody should be allowed to sink to a position of destitution and of need. It means that we have the conviction that everybody should be, is entitled, intrinsically entitled, to live at a standard of, at a, a standard of personal decency, to live in a way that they can feel their own inner dignity, that they could live with a sense of self-respect that will also win the respect of others. And the sense of justice, which I take to be very fundamental to my own conception of the Dhamma of the Buddha, is based on what I would call the perception of the essential unity of all living beings, especially all human beings, the idea that we are all alike, no matter what our gender might be, no matter what our race, national origins, color of the skin, religious beliefs, social class, all of that becomes irrelevant when we put it alongside what is truly critical, truly essential. And that is the idea that every living being and every human being wants to be well, wants to be happy, 
wants to be free from all harm and suffering, wants to be able to live and to live abundantly. I don't mean to live um, luxuriously, but to live abundantly in the sense to expand one's intellectual horizons, to expand one's cultural horizons, and at the ultimate, to expand one's spiritual horizons. In fact, the way I've been thinking a little bit about the needs of human beings, I've seen that there's a kind of hierarchy of needs that have to be met to bring true human fulfillment. And here my thinking along this line has been very much influenced by Dr. Aryaratna, the founder of Sarvodia organization, except I simplify it a little bit. So we have at the bottom of the pyramid the basic material needs that have to be met. Everybody should have sufficient nutritious food, clean potable water, should have a satisfactory sanitation, should have a spacious, decent, clean living quarters, shelter, should have decent clothing, and should have access to affordable medical care. So at the bottom of the pyramid, extremely essential for a wholesome and fulfilling life, meeting the material needs. At the second level, we have meeting what we can call the developmental needs. This would mean living in a harmonious family where there are healthy family relationships, healthy relationships between husband and wife, parents and children, children to parents, and the children to one another. And so one needs the kind of values that will enable a wholesome family life to develop. We find the Buddha has given important guidelines in, in this area in his teaching of the Sigalovada Sutta. It's actually one of my favorite suttas <laughs> because it's not dealing with these super high meditative states or these super profound philosophical insights into selflessness, dependent origination, emptiness, whatever. But, in fact, this is really what clinched my faith in the Buddha. When I read the Sigalovada Sutta, he explains how children should treat their parents, how parents should treat the children, how the husband should treat the wife, how the wife should treat the husband, how a teacher treats his students, the students treat the teacher, how the worker relates to his employer, how the employer should treat the workers. And when I read this, I thought, wow, somebody can be completely enlightened and yet can advise the husband, once in a while, give a nice gift to your wife. (laughs) (laughs) And when you have workers in your home, make sure that they get enough nutritious food and give them, every year, give them an annual vacation. (laughs) When I was reading the teachings on Paticca Samuppada, selflessness, I thought, wow, the Buddha can really be enlightened. Maybe, but maybe not. You know, maybe that's just his view against the view of the 
Advaita Vedantins who say everything is all the one universal reality. But then when I read some of the Advaita Vedantins say that if a shudra, a person from the lowest class in Indian society, hears the Vedas, the sacred texts, he should be beaten. But the Buddha says, the husband should give the wife authority in the home and the employer should give vacation to his workers and the friend should look after the friend in times of need and provide any assistance that's necessary. Then I thought, wow, the difference between these Brahminical Vedantic teachings and the Buddha just so startling clear that truly the Buddha is the enlightened one. And then there's a story about Sunita. It comes in the Teragata, the verses of the elder monks. Sunita was, in Indian society, he was like an outcast. His job was to go in the early morning through the streets where people would put out, this was, I guess, the Indian toilet system of the days, when people would be finished going to the toilet, they would put the excrement out in a certain place on the street, and the outcast person that nobody wants to touch or deal with would sweep up the excrement into a kind of barrel and collect it and then dispose of it someplace outside the town. So that was Sunita's job, was just to collect the excrement, an excrement collector. And one day he was at his work, and the Buddha comes walking down the street together with a couple of the monks. And Sunita feels so ashamed and so afraid that he thinks that's the ascetic Gautama, the famous teacher that they call the Buddha coming. And here um, he's just wearing this loincloth, his body all dirty and smelly. And he puts aside his instruments and he goes standing against the wall. He just doesn't want to get in the way of the Buddha. He thinks the Buddha is such a powerful ascetic, you know, radiating his majestic presence. And he feels so low, miserable, and dirty. And the Buddha comes walking past him and turns to him and says, Sunita, would you like to go forth and become a monk under me? Sunita says, I can't do that. I'm, excuse me, I'm a shit collector. The Buddha says, if you want to become a monk, you're welcome. And Sunita felt, you know, just like somebody who was eating, you know, a poor person just eating a few grains of rice had suddenly come and put a sumptuous meal on his plate. So he thought, wonderful, Bhante, please ordain me as a monk. And so the Buddha arranged for his ordination. Then, after becoming ordained as a monk and getting his basic instruction, Sunita went off to practice meditation and after a period of diligent practice, he became an arahant. 
an enlightened one, perfectly liberated one. Then one night, he was sitting out on the rock, you know, it was kind of flat rock, sitting in meditation, and then Saka, Saka is the king of the devas, the gods in the heaven of the 33, comes down and worships Sunita. The people see just the bright light. Then Mahabrahma, surrounded by many of his Brahma deities, come down from even a higher heaven and worship Sunita. So the whole hill on which Sunita is sitting is now enveloped by a bright light. And then the Buddha recites this verse in which he praises Sunita, the outcast, the excrement collector. This one, he says, that is the true Brahmin, you know, the true one of the highest class, the one who has destroyed all of the defilements and become illumined, enlightened, liberated in mind. Okay, so this shows the, what I would call at least at one level this commitment to this potential that is in all living beings, especially all human beings, for awakening, for enlightenment. And based on that, we have the conception of social justice, that we all have this entitlement to unfold these potentials. And to unfold them, we need material security, we need the wholesome family life, we need a wholesome social structure, we need the freedom to develop our intellectual potential and the freedom to develop our spiritual potential. Okay, the fourth quality that enters into this constellation of qualities that enable us to practice conscientious compassion is wisdom. And here by wisdom, I'm speaking at a practical level. I'm not talking about the insight into the dependent origination or into the three characteristics of all phenomena, but wisdom in the sense of, we might call this judiciousness, the ability to choose right goals, goals that are in accordance with the Dharma and goals that are realistic, goals that we might be able to fulfill. So we have to explore different avenues, different possibilities to engage in compassionate action and choose some goal that seems to us right and proper and a goal that accords with our own temperament, with our own talents, with our own abilities. And then we commit ourselves based on that perception of what is the appropriate goal. And then having chosen the right goal, one also has to choose with wisdom the right means to fulfill that goal. Just to give a rather simple practical example, let's say with our work in Buddhist Global Relief, 
when we decide that we would like to provide food assistance to, say, people in, say, Niger or Mali who are suffering from malnutrition. We have to choose the right organization to work with, the right partner, and then this will be a partner like we chose the Helen Keller International Organization. So that is choosing with wisdom the right goal. We investigate the organization, see what they're doing, how they operate, how they use their funds. And then from other records, we find that they're reliable. Then we ask them to submit the proposal. They sit, submit the proposal. And then we examine the proposal and evaluate it. And this is using a kind of wisdom. It doesn't have to be, you know, when people hear the word wisdom in a Buddhist context, they think, ah, that's the wisdom of enlightenment. But this is a kind of very practical wisdom. Okay, the next quality or practice that we have to undertake in engaging in this work, and that is what I call self-cultivation. And this goes, in a way, this extends out from wisdom, and this goes with the aspect mentioned in the discussion this morning. In order to work effectively for others, one has to also take care of oneself. The one thing that we all want to avoid is we call burnout, overextending ourselves to the point we suffer, sometimes there's an expression, compassion fatigue, where you engage in too much compassionate activity, activity that goes beyond one's own strength, beyond one's own inner ability, and then one burns out and sometimes becomes angry, sometimes becomes depressed, sometimes becomes overwhelmed by a sense of futility. So when we come into this work, what we want to bring into it is a strong, flexible, malleable mind. A mind which is able to face difficulties without collapsing under their weight. A mind which is flexible enough to adapt to different situations that we encounter, and a mind which is gentle enough to be able to know when to stop back, to step back, and wait patiently. So self-cultivation actually involves a whole nexus of qualities, including both energy, patience, and bhavana, or meditation. And it's especially the meditative practice that untaps from within ourselves hidden reserves of strength that we didn't know existed. So when we you know, practice the meditation, it's somewhat like, <laughs> maybe it's a, like digging to open up a well, not an oil well, we want to keep those well covered, <laughs> but a well f- or from which water can spring up, nourishing, sweet, delicious water. And so as we calm the mind, make the mind quiet, we're able to make the mind steady, poised, 
strong and equanimous. And then we can bring that strong mind into the field of compassionate action so that we can act effectively, act with the wisdom of judiciousness, of making the right choices, choosing the right principles and policies to follow in order to achieve our aim. Okay, a sixth quality that is essential or important in the work of conscientious compassion is respect for others. Because the work of compassion in the world first is usually undertaken as a group activity, a community activity. And so when we work with others, we always have to develop the frame of mind which inwardly is humble and without any self-promotion and outwardly can respect others in that we allow others to speak, we are ready to listen to the viewpoint of others, we're ready to give others responsibilities rather than think that I am the great worker, so I should take all of the responsibilities for myself. And then often there are differences of opinions, differences of views, so we have to be able to negotiate these differences successfully, skillfully. And if we have even a subtle kind of arrogant attitude or an attitude of a slight degree of haughtiness or of self-righteousness. The Buddha speaks about one of the negative qualities he calls, it's called clinging to one's own view and relinquishing with difficulty. (laughs) He says, like, this is one of the factors that can lead to speaking to the Sangha, to disputes, quarrels, and dissension within the Sangha. And so in any kind of communal activity where people come together, often people with sometimes with strong opinions, of course one has to have the conviction to present one's views and opinions, but one shouldn't have this clinging to them. Out of respect for one's colleagues, one should be willing to listen to other opinions and then with Impartial wisdom, one weighs the different opinions, the different suggestions, and then decides what is best, not what I originally proposed. I should mention that when I first became involved with Buddhism, my teacher was a Vietnamese monk who was studying in the same university that I was studying in. And I come from a New York Jewish background. And there's one thing New York Jewish boys are all taught by their mothers. (laughs) Don't let anybody argue you down. You know just as much as they do, and you argue your point of view. And so when I started to study Buddhism, you know, I had been reading Buddhist books for a few months, and my teacher at that time had been a monk for 
13 years or so, and had passed through like a monastic college in Vietnam. But when he would express an opinion that was somewhat contradictory to what I was reading in the books of Alan Watts in those days, (laughs) you know, I would start arguing with him and... (laughs) When I saw I couldn't convince him, I would turn around and leave the room in which we were speaking and sometimes slam the door behind me (laughs) till he would call me back and he would tell me, when you have an opinion, don't cling to it as being necessarily right, but you should listen to the other person's opinion and always think in your mind, I might be right, I might be wrong, What's important is not to defend my position, but to find out what is true and correct. And then he taught me that I should say that sentence to myself every morning after waking up. (laughs) And I did that for quite some time, and now I think I've overcome that problem. About 50 or 60 (laughs) percent. Still working on it. (laughs) Okay, so have respect for the people with whom one works. And when one is working with others, or working for others, always have respect for the people for whom one is working. This is really, I think, one of the key contributions that Buddhism can make in this field of interfaith collaboration. Because people, I have to say, from the West, the Western religions come to the Asian countries, to African countries, somewhat with the idea that we, the Westerners, from the Christian background or the Jewish background, we're the ones who know best. We will tell you how to do things. But as Buddhists, we always have to have this attitude of looking at others whether they're simple, poor, illiterate, doesn't matter. Look at them as human beings whose minds actually embrace the whole universe. Everyone is just an embodiment, you could say, a manifestation of the whole universe. And so one considers people from that point of view, one respects everyone, even the simple children. Okay, so the sixth is respect for others. So now, just to recapitulate, I've had faith, compassion, a sense of justice, wisdom or judiciousness, self-cultivation or meditative cultivation, and respect for others. And there's a seventh factor that I'm going to mention. And this might say, seem a little bit odd in a Buddhist context, but I call this openness to grace. And this means that, the way I understand it, when one makes a commitment to following a spiritually grounded, altruistic life and really surrenders to a greater force, as Buddhists, we can call this the power of the triple gem, then somehow... It sets in motion these invisible waves that roll out from our own minds and hearts. 
a kind of spiritual or psychic energy that sends its vibrations out through the whole universe and starts connecting with other people's minds and hearts in ways we can't understand and brings about sometimes astonishing, unpredictable, surprising, mind-blowing events that seem like utter, unforeseeable coincidences. But this is happening because one sets up the right resolution, the wholesome intention, an intention which I would say that it, speaking a little mystically, it sort of vibrates in harmony with the vibrations of the cosmic dharma, the cosmic law of the universe. And that law is all-pervading and all-embracing. So many currents start getting activated so that things happen that will bring you sometimes into contact with exactly the person that you need to help you exactly the person to teach you, exactly the person to study from you, with you, sometimes exactly the person to provoke you, to antagonize you, to obstruct you, (laughs) in order to give you the opportunity to advance further. And so when we undertake this work of compassionate activity, we focus our mind dedicate it to the good, and act with trust in the invincible power of goodness. And then we, in a sense, dance with any conditions that arise in the conviction that by as long as we are committed to the good, we will eventually prevail. And we see this as the work, working of Grace, or in the Pali, we might call this the Buddha Anubhava, Buddha Anubhava, Dhamma Anubhava, Sangha Anubhava, the spiritual power of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, which is helping us to advance in fulfilling this ideal of wise and compassionate activity. So, with this, I will close the talk. And in order to keep on schedule, I won't ask for questions, but are we supposed to take a little break before the panel, or maybe just five minutes just to stretch the legs, and then we'll have the panel discussion. Mm 